Well, good morning again. It's great to be with you on this 4th of July weekend. It's good for us to celebrate our freedoms and remember the deeper freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. John 8, 6 says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Well, today we're starting a new message series called Joyful Noise, How Song Inspires Deeper Faith. And each week over the summer, we'll be looking at different ways in which music and singing are really integral to the growth of our faith and how God uses song to help you deepen your relationship with him. We'll focus on some old familiar hymns as well as some new music you may have never heard before. And we'll tie the music into what the Bible teaches about worship and praise and how we honor God by the way we live. So let me pray as we begin now. Lord Jesus, we know the power of song. Sometimes we don't stop to reflect on why, where that power comes from. So even as we've sung and worshiped this morning, may you continue, Lord, to use this summer series as a kind of a breath of fresh air for us as we look at faith in perhaps a new direction, a new angle. So Lord, inspire us now through the presence of your Holy Spirit and let your word speak to us, maybe in ways this morning that we've never realized. Help us to be surprised. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. In the sport of boxing, there's a phrase that TV commentators use to describe a boxer who who jumps right into the fight. As soon as the bell rings, no hesitation, no dancing around. He goes right at his opponent. The phrase is, he came out swinging. Well, we've just finished this message series on the early church from the book of Acts. And if there's one thing we should remember about the early Christians as they spread the gospel throughout the ancient world, they came out singing. Singing. That's right. We don't often hear much about the practical sort of day-to-day life of the first century followers of Jesus, but tucked into the pages of the entire New Testament were all these kind of scattered uh, gems that give us a, a glimpse of what it was like for them to go to work, to raise their children, to gather in worship, and to live as a community of Christ. And singing is one of those gems that you'll find sprinkled throughout almost every book of the New Testament. Like in the book of Acts that we just finished, Acts 16, verse 24, where Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. Their feet are locked in stocks. I mean, they're in a very dire situation. So what do they do? It says this, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a violent earthquake at the foundation of the prisons were shaken. And at once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. They were locked up in prison, and what did they do? They started a hymn sing, a hymn sing. I wonder, you know, if Paul was a baritone, if Silas was a tenor, we don't know if they could even carry a tune in a bucket, but they started singing. The important thing is that they were in a tough time, a tough spot, and so they did what came naturally to them. They started to sing. And I'm sure they weren't singing some, you know, mournful dirge, some Johnny Cash-style Folsom prison blues. No, but a powerful song of, of faith and courage and hope in God's deliverance. And look what happened. One moment they're singing, and the next moment the walls are caving in. And this shouldn't surprise us. After all, the disciples took their singing cues from Jesus. Jesus. Jesus' life was wrapped in song. 
when the Holy Spirit first inseminated the embryo in the womb of the Virgin Mary, what did she do? She sang. She sang what is now famously called her Magnificat. My soul glorifies the Lord. That's Luke chapter 1. Jesus' mother sang to him while he was in the womb. That's how his earthly life began. And on this last night with his disciples when they celebrated the Passover, and he gave them the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, how did that meal end? Do you remember? Matthew twenty six thirty, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus sang with his disciples right to the very end. There's something important about song and faith. Jesus in the early church carried on the tradition of singing that they had learned in the Jewish synagogue from the the deep uh, Old Testament tradition where we see song in all kinds of varieties, in in worship and in war and celebration and in suffering, in private prayer as well as thousands of voices unified together raising their praise to the Lord. Think of Miriam's song in Exodus when the people of Israel safely crossed the Red Sea and yet the waters then swallowed up Pharaoh's army. A song that was passed down to every generation of Hebrew children. And there are two Old Testament books that are completely devoted to songs. The Psalms is 100% songs. Nothing but songs. And the Psalms have inspired the music of the church ever since, for centuries. And the Song of Solomon, which celebrates the God-ordained union of a man and a woman in marriage, it's a love song, a song of passion and desire, and if you read it very carefully, it'll make your glasses fog up. King David is well known as one of the greatest poets, songwriters of all time. And in 1 Kings 4, verse 32, it tells us that he passed on his musical genes to his son Solomon who wrote, the text says, 1,003 songs. I think that's more than Elton John. So why music? What's so important about song that it permeates the pages of Scripture? Why does God put so much song in Scripture and in his people? Well, first, songs take root in your memory. In your memory. Somehow, our brains are wired for music. Your brain is designed this way. You've got this outer neocortex that's responsible for rational thought and the inner limbic brain that's basically responsible for the emotions. The two sections of your brain work together, hopefully. The outside understands facts and figures but does not control behavior. The inner limbic brain has no capacity for language but it controls behavior and so they have to work together. But it's in the limbic brain where you get your gut instincts. Things either feel right or they don't feel right. And basically, we live from the inside out. It's that inner emotive brain that actually controls your behavior, and then later on you find, you know, quote-unquote facts to justify what your inner gut was telling you was true. Any impulse shoppers out here? That's exactly what happens. You have an impulse, and then later you rationalize that action. Music speaks to that inner limbic brain. That's why we can remember a tune better than we can, you know, just raw data or facts. That's why advertisers use catchy jingles to get into your head so that you can't get it out of your head. You find yourself singing in your head until it drives you crazy. Forbes.com recently took a walk down memory lane 
and had a panel of chief marketing officers and executives rank the top 10 jingles of all time. Now, see if you can finish these jingles for me. You just got to shout it right out. Don't be shy, okay? I'm counting on you. Don't be shy. Uh, let's make this interactive, okay? Oh, I wish I were in. There we go. Okay, you got the first one. Okay, plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Okay, I know some of you are probably using that product this weekend. And the number one well-remembered uh, jingle is, I'd like to buy the world a Coke. Excellent, good. You guys have watched way too much TV in your life, haven't you? Now, if I asked everyone to please repeat Psalm 1 from memory, go. Okay, what happens? People say they can't memorize scripture passages, but you know the words to hundreds of songs. Put scripture into a song and people will learn it in no time. You just start singing along because they are embedded in your memory. Music embeds your memory. Second, music and song touch your emotions. Because music goes right to that limbic brain, it automatically connects with memories, and your emotions get stirred. You'll hear a song, and it'll just trigger something. You wonder, where did that come from? Something wonderful or something painful. A memory that you've got stored away, and the music connects so that with that memory that you actually feel it all over again. Music can manipulate your emotions for excitement, you know, whether you're in a dance club or a sporting event or at an opera. Both secular and sacred music touch the whole range of emotions, from sadness to melancholy to joy and to praise. That's why there are psalms of lament in the Bible. And right next to it, a psalm of praise. Music runs the gamut of emotions. And third, songs and lyrics create beauty. Beauty. Because of the emotional quality that music can evoke, it appeals to our inner sense of aesthetics. One of our unique qualities of human beings created in the image of God is that we like to create. We are able to create. We create art. We create music. We create poetry to express our sense of beauty. And God wants us to enjoy beauty and aesthetics because they enhance life. Someone once said that earth without art is just, uh, think about that for a moment. Isn't that the main appeal of traditional church music, the sense of beauty for people who revel in that classical style? And for those who, who don't see classical music as their favorite, they can still learn to appreciate the, the complexity and the beauty of a Handel or, or a Bach. And the lyrics of many of our hymns and songs are often the most beautiful poetry imaginable. And that's why the Psalms are so powerful and have remained that way for 3,000 years. We don't know what they sounded like when they were first sung and performed, but we know the words. And even in translation, thousands of years later, the lyrics capture our hearts. Words skillfully connected have a tremendous power to communicate. And that leads to the fourth point. Not only are poetic words beautiful, but they also condense or compress truth. In poetry, intense meaning gets crammed into a very few words. Listen to the poetic power of this familiar hymn. Just close your eyes for a second and listen to these words. Immortal, 
invisible, God only, wise, in light and accessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light. Nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might, thy justice like mountains, high soaring above thy clouds, which are fountains of goodness and love. The words of that hymn are intensely compressed truth. They really need some unpacking. And it reminds us that in all Christian music, content is key. Content is key. It's not just the beautiful sound. It also and essentially revolves around the content. A song might be beautiful, but if the words aren't right, if they're not in line with the Bible, then it's going to fail as a resource for your faith. The content and the power of poetry then requires some thought, some reflection. You've got to let it seep into your soul. You can't just kind of gulp it down. You have to let it sip. You have to meditate on it. And if you can sing it out loud or just in your mind, God can put those words to work inside your heart to to encourage you, to teach you, to guide you, to draw you closer to him. That's how God uses music to strengthen your faith. And that brings us to to the oldest known hymn of the church. It's found in 1 Timothy 3.16. Some of you may be surprised to know that Amazing Grace is not the oldest hymn of the church. As far as Bible scholars can determine, this quotation by the Apostle Paul is a song that was popular in the church of Ephesus around the year 60 A.D. And it contains the oldest lyrics of any known Christian music. We don't have any idea what it sounded like. So we don't know how it might have impacted people's memories or emotions, but the lyrics alone Pack a powerful punch. Let me read just this one verse. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Remember I said content is key. So let's look at the content for just a moment because it is so compact with so much meaning is crammed into so few words. The content is built around six verbs. Six verbs that in the ancient Greek all had the exact same ending. And that's what made it move. That's what gave it rhythm. That's what made it poetry. And you can't get the feel of that by reading the English translation. It really only works in the Greek. And that's why so many people just kind of skip over this verse without realizing its great depth. These six verbs summarize the life and the ministry of Christ. He appeared in the flesh. That's Christ's incarnation. His coming to be born of Mary, not God pretending to be a man or a man pretending to be a God, but both natures united without confusion. The very Son of God born into this real physical world, vindicated by the Spirit. When Jesus rose up out of the waters of John's baptism, the heavens opened and the Spirit descended upon him, a coronation moment that showed that he was truly God's Messiah. Seen by the angels is a shorthand way to reference his resurrection from the dead. And the angels 
saw it happen and surrounded him. Preached among the nations. Now the angels aren't the only ones who know who Jesus is. The church is fulfilling Jesus' great commission to go and spread the good news to all nations. And the people who first sang the song were part of that movement. Part of that movement. And they saw that Christ was believed on in the world. And the hymn concludes with a reminder of Christ's ascension into heaven, taken up in glory where he now reigns in heaven so that people would know that he has all authority and that all authority had been given to him by his heavenly Father. What we have here is the beginning of a Christian creed, short statements that summarize the Christian faith, statements that clarify what it was that the apostles were teaching, short memorable snippets about Jesus, a jingle, if you will. Easily memorized, easily shared with newcomers. This one verse has it all. It's a tightly packed creed that is the very essence of New Testament Christianity. If someone were ever to ask you, well, what's this Christian faith all about? You should go to 1 Timothy 3.16 and just walk them through each six of these verbs. It's better than the four spiritual laws. It's too bad we don't know the tune, or you could sing it to them. You can still memorize it, even in English, and it packs a wallop. But there's one more thing you need to see about this short song to fully appreciate the beauty of the gift of God has given us in this one verse. This is where you need to look at the back of your bulletin or the handout or up on the screen to follow along with what I'm trying to say. Remember that this is poetry, poetry based on six similarly sounding verbs. But that's not the main feature of ancient Greek poetry. The main feature was a literary style that you sort of have to write out visually in order to fully appreciate. It was called chiastic symmetry. Chiastic symmetry, and it's based on the Greek letter chi, which looks like our letter X. Chi is also the first letter of the Greek word for Christ, Christos. And the letter chi became commonly used as an abbreviation for the name of Christ. Christians would use that letter to mark their secret meeting spots or to identify each other during times of persecution. They used it in their letters instead of the full, writing out the full name Christ to save space on paper because paper was so valuable back then. So since the chi represented Christ to them, Christians liked using this thing called chiastic symmetry. How does it work? Well, each one of these six phrases is paired with another phrase. And so, appeared and vindicated are paired together on the first line in the text. The second line is seen and preached. The third line is believed and taken up. Now, between each one of those lives, lines, you just put a big X, a big chi. And you'll see how each verb is also paired in a different way with another verb. You follow that slash mark down one side of the X shape, And it ties the words together. And a pattern emerges. Follow this. Appeared, number one, is tied to preached, number four. And preached is tied to believed. So verbs one, four, and five actually to go together. And each one of these verbs is connected to each other because each one has to do with what happens here on earth. It's all about Christ born, Christ preached, Christ believed. They are tied together because those are all the ministries, uh, the life of Jesus here on earth. Do you see that? 
And if you look at the other verbs, verb number two, vindicated by the Spirit, is tied to number three, seen by angels, which is then tied to number six, taken up in glory. All three of those have to do with the heavenly realm. And so you've got this contrast between the the first set of verbs, which have to do with the earth, and verbs two, three, and six, which are both, or all three, about heaven. That's how chiastic symmetry works. It's an intricate and artistically complicated way for the writer to arrange his thoughts. So within this densely packed theological statement is also a beautifully creative work of art, a poem, a poem that adds an even deeper level to the meaning of this one short verse. And what's even more beautiful is that if you draw out the chiastic symmetry, like in your bulletin, guess what? You've got Christ at the center of it all. You've got Christ at the center. Not only do the words give theological content, but the very form of the poem, the structure itself, points to the centrality and the supremacy of Christ. It's a double-barreled testament to Jesus. The words and the poetic form together, they both put him first in the hearts of ancient believers. And maybe this one short artistic verse can help remind you to put Christ at the center of your life each and every day. Now, I know that when you rolled out of bed this morning, you probably your first thought was, boy, I hope Jeff preaches on chiastic symmetry in ancient Greek poetry. Am I right? Well, there are two things I want you to take home this morning. Remember about this passage, the beauty of the Word of God and the centrality of Christ. Those two things. The beauty that God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired ancient believers to use their creative gifts of of writing and of song to put together a musical poem that could be immortalized in Scripture. God cares about your aesthetic senses. And so for those of you who are artists and musicians and poets and writers, I hope you feel a little more connected with your brothers and sisters in the first century and perhaps more inspired to develop and to use your own artistic gifts to the glory of God, the glory of the God who gave you those gifts. Don't sell yourself short. Nurture your creative side. We need that in the church. It's biblical. And you know what? You need it too. When you use your gifts, you grow closer to God. And God wants to use you to compress and then express his truth through the beauty that you create. And the centrality of Christ, that is so important in our day. There are so many factions within the modern church that are basically pursuing a a Christ-less Christianity. They want the feeling of being religious. They like the rituals. They like to talk about God in a generic way. And somehow, you know, Jesus gets left by the side of the road like some discarded hitchhiker. People can believe whatever they want to but they should at least have the intellectual integrity not to call it Christian. It's not Christian. This verse, that's Christian. This verse defines the very essence of what Christianity was when it was first preached and believed. And it defines the essence of what true Christianity will always be. It is all about Jesus Christ. And if that reality doesn't draw you closer to God, then I don't know what will. So let's, let's come out singing 
The prophet Isaiah put it this way, You shall go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. And that's not a bad bit of poetry either. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for the many-leveled beauty of your word. That the more we read it, the more exciting it becomes, the more we discover, and there's something new every single time we can look into your word, Lord. And I pray that it would be the same way with our relationship with you, that it would be new every morning. Just as your grace and your love are new every morning, may our faith in you grow and develop and deepen, Lord. And may we develop all the artistic abilities that you've given us to express your goodness in our lives. And may we always, Lord, see the centrality of Jesus Christ in everything that we do in his church. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.